He'll see everything. He'll see the big board. He'll see. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Doc! You disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best-loved and most-hated movies. I'm Frida. And I'm Abby. And this week's movie is Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Hi, Frida. Hi, Abby. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I have, I went, I went interstate for a talk this, this week. Oh, yeah. I flew on a plane to give a talk. And it was a really good talk. Oh yeah, so I feel good. But I, I'm I'm good, and I have like two shout outs, one story, and okay. one bit of amazing news for you before we get started Ooh. on the movie. Okay, all right. Do do you want to go with the shout outs then? Yes. All right. First shout out is to my friend Gabe. Gabe sent me a message that he feels like he's hanging out with me all the time. Yeah. But it's only because he's listening to the podcast and he hasn't actually hung out with me. And I just want to say, Gabe, we still haven't hung out. <laughs> and the next shout out is, get this, Abby. There's a lot of firefighters in Tasmania that listen to this podcast that I found <laughs> out. So shout out to all the firefighters down in Tasmania. Protecting the Tasmanians from all the bushfires and all the other fires. Amazing. Special shout out to Jake, the firefighter. Okay. Send us a request, firefighters. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Those are my shout outs. Amazing. I love it. Sort out Gabe. And yeah, Jake, send us some. um, I'm sure there's what what was that movie Backdraft? Isn't that? Oh, yeah. Some firefighter movies. There we go. Oh. (laughs) Maybe we should do one in their honor. <laughs> my photo movie. All right, do you want to tell your story? Oh, fuck. Here's my story. <laughs> so I was in having breakfast in the hotel. And I, I went and I paid extra to have a breakfast buffet because I love breakfast buffets. Do you love breakfast yes, buffets? Yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's my best thing. I actually searched for a hotel that had a breakfast buffet just so I could do this. And I was sitting at my breakfast with my laptop going over my talk again and again and again and again and again. And I was really ready for my talk like days before. And I was going over it every day, like really going over it. Sitting there going over it again and again and again. And I went up to go to the toilet and I came back. And there was a couple behind me and it was a man and a woman. And the man was making fun of me. Loud enough for me to hear. He was being mocking. And I heard it. And I'm sure I was intended to. And... Um, it really like it really upset me and I went upstairs and I was like I felt my confidence just kind of drop because and I started like really spiraling because I got this talk and my confidence and like what am I doing here and I really started to think like man the mocking the mocking man eh it's really Mm. followed me around my whole life I started really spiraling about like from just being constantly mocked by my men whether it's like my dad or like the very strong patriarchal figures in my community mocking my mocking my chosen path in life constant little ways people take digs at me and then at work and in academia like like the way if I do one thing that shows maybe I'm not so good at computers 
mm. then they'll jump on it and make fun of me. And like, I always feel like any little opportunity to pull me down, people are like, oh yeah, she doesn't know much about that. <laughs> and that is being, that's, that's my whole life. And I, I was like really starting to become enraged. And I went down to the lobby and the guy was there <gasps> with his wife. <laughs> and they're all, <laughs> and I was thinking, I bet he has a daughter. And you know what? Betty mocks her, you know, lovingly, but I bet you when she tries to do something serious, he takes little digs. Yeah. I bet you he's a little take. Anyway, I went out to him and I said, excuse me, were you sitting behind me at breakfast? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, you were mocking me. Oh, was it? I was like, you were. This is what you said. I heard you. He was like, oh, oh. And he started saying, oh, well, in my work, that was one of the rules that you, whatever it was. And and I said, you know, my whole fucking, I said, my whole life, people take any opportunity to take me down a peg and just make fun of me. I basically said, this is my lived experience, is that every time I step a small foot wrong, someone will jump and make fun of me. And it is so hard to maintain confidence and it is so hard to believe in myself and feel like I belong. This, you would not believe how often this happens to me. And he was like, oh, well, I've got three daughters. And he starts talking nah. about his daughters, you know, the whole thing. But he, he was like guilty. He was like so guilty, daughters. <laughs> and I even said to him, I was like, you know, I came here for a talk, flying here for a talk. And that affected me, my confidence. And now I have to stand up to a room of doctors who don't believe that I should be telling them anything about anything. And it's like I have to build myself up again. And those, they, they affect me. Anyway, and then I even told him, I was like, you know, I used to dress way more feminine. You know, I, I'd go talk in a dress, put a full face of makeup, and I got different sort of comments. So now I dress more masculine, and I feel like people like to take shots at me just to let me know that I don't belong. And that's what I told him. Amazing. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Stick it. When you said you went upstairs, I was like... <laughs> I just... I'm like, so proud hey, of you. This isn't me. This is what people do. This is what they do. Yeah. They like people love it. And it's like the constant fight to feel like, no, like, and even when I went into the talk, I realized how much I focused on the men in the room because it's so important for me to impress them. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, look at the women. Why are you ignoring the women? The man yes. walks in smug and I think this is the smug man and I need to turn that smug face and becomes my mission in the talk to turn the mm. face around. And I, but then I realize I'm focusing on the man. I'm like, fuck that. Look at the woman that's sitting in the back corner and talk to her. Yeah. Anyways, that is my story. That is amazing. Thank I'm you. I'm so proud of you for going up to him. I'm so proud of you for saying what you said. Um because it is it's like what what's his what's his like as you said that smugness of like he gets to sit there and just mock you for what fucking reason it's also like the pettiest of petty like what is he getting out of that moment he's just made himself feel a little bit bigger a little bit Mm -hmm. more like fucking in the know or i I don't know what is it just more cocky and arrogant in his own self he got to give himself a little boost by putting mm-hmm. you down for what good reason why why does it why did he need to do that like it's so ridiculous mm. it's so childish and you're right yeah. we do that we focus on impressing the men not because we're women and we want men to to like us <laughs> or we want the attention but because they're the ones who are going to make us feel like we're not good enough and so we feel like we have to make them think we're good enough instead of acknowledging as you said walk into the room and look at the women and go right 
I want you to be like, I don't know, proud of me or to to think I'm a good influence or want to understand, to, to learn something. Yeah, learn me. something. I want, yeah. I want you to have a good day. Yeah. Yeah, because it's the men who refuse to validate us and that becomes, we learn those things over the years, at, like experiencing all this sort of patriarchy and then it becomes something that we have to prove. Yeah. to the patriarchy that we belong and it becomes obsessive how quickly i was how quickly i was triggered though i noticed yeah. he triggered me with his cockiness with <laughs> the whole body language i recognized it it was like oh my god this is i recognized it and it triggered me quickly and it broke my confidence quickly and yeah. i was like whoa girl uh, and i really gave yeah. the most amazing talk my talk was sensational and i was like i'm exceptional yeah you know i floored everybody and i have to really start internalizing that and not yeah. this is what we talked about last recording i'm this on a mission you know and like what's really funny is can i tell you two things then <laughs> mm -hmm. um i don't know if you saw this but we got a comment on one of our tiktok videos which is Ooh. a clip that i put up from enemy of the state from way back um like, which clip what were we talking uh, it's about it's the one where you were talking about the resolution of the satellite like how you could uh, what the commercial resolution was versus military resolution oh, that's a great one that's it's a, a very good one. clip and bit. some guy literally said these bimbos <laughs> are talking about something that they that they actually think is in space so I did a reply video to that on my own, on my personal account, because um, I've got, a, I, I do a lot of uh, science and TV show stuff on my personal account. I've got a good amount of followers. So I did a reply video to that. It was really funny, the amount of people that came out for it. And I was like, this is great. And also the fact that it was like, just the fact that it was bimbos. Who fucking uses that word? Bimbos. Oh, he was criticizing my use of the word space. Oh my God, that's one of the things. Like, no, no, no. Talk. I think he's what? a flat earther and he just doesn't believe the satellites are real. <laughs> that's what oh, everyone really? said. They're, everyone jumped to the comments straight away going, flat earther, flat earther, flat earther. Because he doesn't, because we were oh. talking about there being satellites. So he's just like, oh my God. <laughs> They're too close to Earth to technically be space or some shit. Like no, no, no. I think because I I commented oh. back. Wait, wait. Oh, hold on. Shit, I didn't get the. Uh, I can't remember what he said back to me. I've got to see if I can find the comment. Okay, but um, I did comment back to him, just saying, "I'm sorry. Is your problem that we're women, or that you don't believe satellites exist?" <laughs> <laughs> um, where is it? And then he said, "Oh my god." <laughs> <laughs> bimbo oh my god it's so hard man bimbo is amazing isn't can't it? win oh my god bimbo oh, i had such a good outfit for my talk that you did not even oh, know here we go um he said because you're women and then sideways smiley or sideways laughing face not at all it's because you both have a subpar understanding of what you're speaking on truly comical oh so I just said, well, then why don't you enlighten us? Please do feel free to explain the correct science. And he obviously has not replied. <laughs> Bimbos. I just thought it was hilarious. Bimbo is such an old school word. Um, and can I tell you the second thing, which is something that happened to me yesterday in the lab. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a senior yeah. academic in front of a senior postdoc and a PhD student, all men, uh, I was just, I just walked into the lab. I was just, they were standing there chatting and I just randomly walked in. 
and um, they were talking about something and nothing completely out of context, completely out of nowhere. The senior academic turned around to me and said, um, do you find, uh, how do you find putting on the gloves with your nails? How do I find putting on the latex gloves in the lab with my nails? Because my nails are painted. They're painted quite Questions beautifully today. I wish people could see. It. They're quite lovely. Question. How to talk to women. Part one. <laughs> Whoa. Have you seen that video of Cardi B changing a baby's nappy with her nails? Oh, no. How she does it? Oh, it's great. Amazing. Yeah, we can handle... We can handle delicate things okay. with nails. All right. So that's, uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, everybody and Abby, big news. Big signs at the movies news. I'm coming to London, baby. <laughs> Wait, I want to... <laughs> I said that really badly. But I'm coming to London. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. We're going to get a studio and we're going to record in person. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Do I have to bring my microphone with me? Um, no. Or just the studio? No, no, no. The studio, the studio will have a microphone. We're okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't so that's the news. That It'll okay? be so weird. We won't know how to interact with each other in person because we're so used to <laughs> the internet. We'll just be like, ah, weird. Why don't you just do this from the opposite room? We'll just... Yeah. (laughs) We'll still get the computers up and just look at each other on screens. That's very exciting. Mm -hmm. But um, we should probably get into this movie now. Our our intro's a bit long this week, but look, we've had a lot of uh, science life stuff happening. (laughs) And and we like to share the realities of being women in science with you. So we hope you enjoy it. We have a lot going on. We have a lot going on. (laughs) But now... Let's get into Dr. Strangelove. All right, so here's my summary. Mm-hmm. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's the Cold War era. Tensions are high and all sides are operating with one finger hovering over the button. The B-52s are patrolling. The generals are sleeping with their secretaries. It's the <laughs> calm before the storm. One rogue commander, General Ripper, decides the time for action is now. Peace is our profession. So let's bring our enemies some peace. Confiscate all the radios, lock down the barracks, get me some rainwater, and none of that commie fluoridated crap. Ripper gives the go code. Wing attack, plan R. As the bombers start preparation and switch to the secure communications line, the White House learns of Ripper's actions and convenes in the war room. Once it's clear that there's no stopping those planes... The U.S. president attempts to reason with the Russian premier. Surely Dmitry must understand that they didn't mean for this to happen. And there's no need to retaliate. They're super sorry about this little mishap. But it was an honest mistake, Dmitry. Unfortunately, this isn't about the mad doctrine. Because the Russians have built a doomsday machine. A device that will automatically detonate upon a nuclear attack. And designed to destroy the whole planet and every living thing on it. An isotope so radioactive that it has a half-life of 98 years. There's no surviving this fallout. Meanwhile, a British exchange soldier is desperately trying to draw the recall codes from General Ripper as he slowly descends into his conspiracy madness. 
Thankfully, he's pretty obsessive, so determining the letters was actually super easy. The recall codes are sent through and the threat is over. Except, Major Kong's plane has been damaged in an airstrike and the radio is out. So still heading on their mission, they are doing everything to stay in the air long enough to reach a target. Any target. Meanwhile, in the war room, plans are being laid out for how to give humanity the best chances to survive. And it's not looking good for the ladies. Oh. (laughs) Good ending. (laughs) Wow. Frida, Dr. Strangelove. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I watched it once and then I watched it twice. (laughs) And I, I reckon this is something I could watch again and again and again. Yeah. For sure. And I reckon it's going to happen. Yeah. It's so good. It's so yeah. good. It is. It is. So I just con- wrote down feels- exceptional. It's just a truly exceptional movie. It feels so contemporary. It's a shock to the system. It feels <laughs> miraculous. When you see something that's that good and it feels so contemporary and you're like, this is, it's like a miracle. Yeah. And you realize how much, how crappy most of the stuff you you, you digest it. It's like, <laughs> fuck. It, it just, it's like a, weird how contemporary it feels, just the way they talk and the way they act. It doesn't feel old fashioned. Yeah. And in office, like what they're, they're, none of the gimmicks feel old fashioned as well. It's so, none of it dated. It's weird. It's amazing. Uh, it, it's just like, it's one of those things where, I think I just got it. I woke up really early one morning and like I'd watched it. I'd taken all my notes. I'd uh, I'd been ready kind of, I'd mostly been ready for recording. And then just one morning I woke up extra early at like six in the morning. I was like, I think I'm just going to watch it again. Just for laughs. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's, I mean, I've watched it before. It's not like, it's not like I've never seen it, but it was also just kind of, um, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to pick it. So I'm very excited to talk about it. Uh, but yeah, it was just, it's just a comfort movie, weirdly. I don't know why. <laughs> because you know it's going to be good and you know you're going to have a good experience with it. So yeah. Yeah. It's comfort because it's, it's good. Yeah. That's, yeah. And you, that's all. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't, nothing to do with the subject matter. It's just so entertaining. So okay. good. Where do we begin? Lead uh, the let's way, talk, Captain. let's begin with the cast. Let's talk about the cast okay. first because. Okay, yeah, for sure. The, I want to get into the specifically into like the characters that Peter Sellers are portraying a bit later, but I want to mm-hmm. talk about Peter Sellers for a minute because I genuinely think like, do you remember, do you remember when you made me watch that piece of shit, The Nutty Professor 2? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Uh, this is how you do multi-role <laughs> films as an actor. Yeah. Like this is how different. you do it. You don't take on yeah. every role. You take on a select few and then you bounce off great actors so like not just making us watch this weird thing where you're bouncing off yourself all the time and it's like, what the fuck? There's no real genuine interaction here. There was just beautiful, genuine interaction of each of his characters with a real other person next to him. And I just thought it was fucking incredibly well done. How do we feel about Peter Sellers? Yeah, um, I, I think that the, the second time I watched it, I really could see how physically he transforms. And it's not, and he transformed completely different. He became totally different. His gait is different. His cadence is different, obviously, even different accents. But, like, that's one thing, accent's fine. But it's, like, the entire manner of his posture, yeah. the patterns of his speech. It's, it's, they're completely different people. It's, it's crazy. It's, like, 
there's so much talent and it's yeah. really amazing. I, I I just want to watch again just so I can I can keep appreciating. I did feel that um obviously I was aware of some of the sort of more famous moments of the movie and I did I did feel some of it was a little broad like because some of his characters are so well done. They feel like real mm. people and they have such realistic mannerisms. It's so weird that he's just imitating, like it's imitation because it feels like a real person. But there were some points near the end that I was like, okay, this is a little broad, I think. Mm. Even though they're, they're the more, more famous parts of the movie. Oh, okay. You know, right. at the end, yeah. I was like that, okay. I, it, <laughs> okay. So we'll come back to the characters a bit later. So we have Lionel yeah. Land Drake. Hell, are the Russians about? Oh, <laughs> oh my god! Oh yes, I've I been love tortured. It. No, I didn't. Uh, talk. I was the it. president. Did you ever catch the president's name? Mifli. I don't know Mifli. if the Merkin Muffley. Merkin Muffley. <laughs> to meet. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, then Doctor Strange, love. So you yeah. could just tell that the president was improvising every one of those phone calls. I'm assuming. Oh, we'll, yeah, we'll come back to that in, yeah, uh, okay. in a little bit. So uh, so let's talk about some of the other characters first. So a, a fourth character that Peter Sellers was actually supposed to play was Major Kong. But he himself had said he felt it was too much and that he didn't want to play that many characters. Um, and he ended up, uh, I can't remember, it was something like he hurt his ankle or something and he couldn't get in and out of the B-52 setup anymore. So they then actually went and got in Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens. Oh my god! Slim um, Pickens, an actor and rodeo performer, of course he was, and obviously completely comfortable with taking the piss out of himself, which is highly oh, respectable. Yeah. Can he I almost over? Yeah, you go. Oh, no, I just want to tell you a story. No, go on. Sorry, please talk about him first, and I'll, I'll tell the story at the end. He maybe nearly overshadows Peter Sellers oh. with the pitch perfect, like no. pitch perfect joke of his character. <laughs> and the consistency of it the, 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 the carrying it like all the fucking way through yeah the second that he gets that hat ah oh, beautiful it's so funny <laughs> and then oh yeah that song every time they go to the plane oh it's so good the gag oh, yeah my phone buzzed the gag is so well done like at no point Am I bored of the gag? At any yeah. point, they just kept going and going, and it, it was so amazing. I loved him. He was amazing. That joke is still good today, though, as well. It's like, yeah. <laughs> especially so today. What I find really interesting about the cast is that every every one of these main kind of characters that we just talked about, they all served in the military. The actual oh, actors. So Slim Pickens, the story that I want to tell you about him is that he enlisted in the Air Force during World War II. And apparently when he was asked his profession, he said rodeo, which the recruiter misheard as radio. And so he ended up being posted at a radio station the whole time. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> I just think That's it's hilarious. An excellent, <laughs> excellent fact. Slim Pickens. He's so funny. Um... Okay, let's move on to General Ripper, played by Sterling Hayden, who Sterling Hayden starred in two movies in 1941 before leaving Hollywood to join the U.S. Marine Corps and the war effort. So another. Hmm. um, Yeah. How do we feel about General Ripper? 
Yeah, he was just perfectly psychotic. He was so funny. <laughs> I didn't. I saw the Jack D. Ripper the second time I watched it. I noticed that was his name, Jack D. Ripper. Um, <laughs> yeah, just wonderfully nuts. But also, I feel like he. It was it was Peter Sell's reaction to him that yeah. kind of did did the character. It was it was the looks, the uncomfortable <laughs> looks and sounds yeah. coming from Mandrake that really like that really flew this one home. It's always a moment of like that English politeness of not being entirely sure if this is just like an Americanism or if this guy's crazy. And it's just beautiful. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Um, then like, we, yeah, have, <laughs> we have uh, my favourite, which is General Buck Turgidson, played by George C. Scott, who I adore. He also enlisted <laughs> in the Marine Corps and served during World War Two. So, yeah, I mean, I said that everyone everyone was in. I just thought it was that yeah. was interesting that they all served in the army, served during the war. So it's felt yes. like they were able to make character caricatures out of their own experiences. Mm. But yeah, Buck Turgidson, how do we feel? <laughs> Well, I guess they're all part of the greatest generation. Yeah. I mean, because there was a big war and they all had to serve, I suppose. But you know when he falls, when he's like running and he falls and he gets... Yeah. These these things are like, these moments, they're almost they're like treats. They're yeah. like, we're not worthy of this delicious treat of these people clowning around. <laughs> <laughs> it's like highbrow clowning. Yeah, there's, a, there's my favourite. I'm trying to find the quote here, but when he's listing off points oh. and he's like, what? And he listens, it's like two, and he gets to five, and he's like, five. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, and the five is basically like, let it explode. And then, like, whatever he says, retaliate. Yeah. Like, but the way he just goes, five. <laughs> like, these little things. I uh, just want to rewind and rewind and rewind yeah. the whole time. Oh, it was good. What did you think of him? Oh, exceptional. Every expression, every, like, just everything that he did, I just, yeah. I thought it was excellent. And yeah, it's those it's those moments particularly where he thinks he's making a really good point. And like so he just gets that he just suddenly gets very kind of like, listen, I have an idea. <laughs> You're just like he's so oh, funny. Dude. But his um, speeches were so good. I loved it what he was saying, like the content of a lot of his speeches when he's like, Well, no, actually that wouldn't work and he's like explaining the design of all of these systems. And <laughs> yeah. it was just so so entertaining. Um so- the last person I want to give a shout out to is just a shout out to James Earl Jones on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, wasn't he? Yeah, just love it. What do we um, know him from? One, two, three, Star the Wars. Lion King. Oh, oh. God. Oh, Star Wars. <laughs> what are you talking about? Damn it. <laughs> Lion King, the remake and the original. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Do you have anyone else in the cast that you want to have a chat about? No. Okay. Are there any scenes you want to pick out? He'll see everything. He'll see the big board. He'll see the big board. <laughs> He'll see the big board. Yeah. In his um, face, in his hands. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go on. Give me some of yours. Um, just just a little validation for me because we did blast in the past. That was our last big episode. And when they're the scene where they're shooting the Coca Cola thing, 
you have to answer to Coca-Cola. But that, that entire sequence where the door opens and the guy walks in there yeah. and the, and his, his whole performance is brilliant. Yeah. When he, got, when, he, when he opens the door and he sees Jack the Ripper dead, he lets out this low whistle as well. It's just He was amazing. But when Murder Magic is trying to make the phone call, you see in the back this poster that says, Civil Defence, it's your business, referring to the 1948 laws. It basically says, do it yourself, guys. We can't afford it. And that's that civil defense. It's your business. And then there's a quote. It says, gee, dad, thanks for thinking of us. <laughs> Amazing. That's so funny. Oh, my God. Beautiful. And I explained that. I explained that entire policy yeah. position last time. So that was a good moment. <laughs> Another one? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess while I'm on the topic, this is not a thing, but also I just want to say that the size of the bombs on the B-52 is the same size as the bomb that I simulated last time as well. Okay. 50 megatons. Um, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. (laughs) Classic. Which I know the line, but it's still hilarious the way he says it and the timing of it. All the cakes, it's all the gateaus, you know. Right. The, the, the size, the sheer size of that set, like it is stunning, but it's just mad. How about the little survival kits? Oh, you, uh, a guy could have a lot of fun with this. Stop. The mini Holy Bible and Russian phrase book combo. <laughs> it's <laughs> fucking beautiful. <laughs> Three lipsticks, one pair of nylons, a prophylactic. Yes. Oh, a guy could have a lot of fun with this in Vegas. <laughs> Nylons, lipstick. Oh, God. To trade? What's that for? <laughs> so many, but even when, when they get on the B-52 and the guys with the cards and, like, they're all doing different things. Yeah. Because it's... It, yeah, because we, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, eating. It's, yeah. The, eating. <laughs> the, only other, the only other thing I just want to say is it's just the, the whole phone call with Dimitri, the premier, is just... Yeah. But you're, well, you're but well. Dimitri. Yeah, but di- no, di- no, Dimitri. <laughs> I never said Dimitri. that. I never said that, Dimitri. <laughs> um, all right. I think we should probably get into themes. Uh-huh. Should we? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah sure. Okay. So the movie is poking fun at the concept of mutually assured destruction and looking at human fallibility. So it shows not only how simple it would be to cause the destruction of our planet through one man's conspiracy theories, but the absurdity of one-upmanship in a war climate. There's a beautiful line where, uh, talking to the Russian ambassador, I just want to read a little bit of the dialogue, and it says, but this is absolute madness, ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? And the ambassador replies, there are those of us who fought against it, but in the end, we could not keep up with the expense involved in the arms race, the space race and the peace race. And at the same time, our people grumbled for more nylons and washing machines. Our doomsday scheme cost us just a small fraction of what we'd been spending on defence in a single year. But the deciding factor was when we learned that your country was working along similar lines and we were afraid of a doomsday gap. Mm. The ridiculousness of this coupled then with Turgeson's reaction, which is, I wish we had our own doomsday machine, where he's just completely missing the point. Because yeah. despite the total... Ina- and 
And not only is he completely missing the point, but then we find at the end that despite the total annihilation of the world, when presented with an idea to allow humanity to survive, the main concern is still, but what if the enemy goes underground too? What happens in a hundred years when we all come out? What if they resurface first? We better make this a military operation. So... As the Russian ambassador conducts some stealthy spy moves as he exits, we all know that the other side is thinking the same thing. And the overall lesson is that they learn no lessons. History repeats itself. The nuclear arms race would ultimately lead to the destruction of humanity. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to keep up. And also how good is when the Doctor Strange loves line about... um, it's all lost if you keep it a secret. Why did you not tell the world, eh? <laughs> to make a doomsday machine and then not tell anybody. How could it be a deterrent? Exactly. Keep it a secret. Ridiculous. <laughs> like there's so many funny little jokes on like how dumb all of this is. Yeah. But yeah. it's also just the fact that like they're only making it because they heard a rumor that the US were making one. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. but <laughs> if you've yeah. got a doomsday, we've got to have a doomsday machine. It's a doomsday gap. It's just great. A doomsday gap. Do you have anything you want to add to the themes? Yeah. To me, I felt, and you know, just reflecting on what's happening, you know, now in the world in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, is this this film made me think of the performative nature of war, mm. how there's a performance in it. Um, I don't want it, but I don't want us to sound like we're minimizing what's happening and saying that it's just a performance because it's it's not a performance. I don't think it's intended as like it's not that, that it's, it's a just... performance. It's that war is performance. Yeah. It's like that people have war a is a need. show of like oh this is how strong yeah. I am and I've got bigger things than you. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Then in the Cuban Missile Crisis, when they're paraded, they per- or they they're yeah. parading the weapons. They have military parades. Russians that have military parades. Yeah. America have military parades, like just to perform to other people. And how much is this personal need being fulfilled by the, on this world yeah. stage and with these bombs and this enormous amount of destruction? Okay. That's what, that's what, yeah. Why it's so watchable today because there's such a deep truth there about that why people on these high levels execute wars on other countries and what, like what's really going on underneath and why we need women to run the world. Okay. <laughs> all right i want to move okay yeah. so trope of the week frida what is your trope i'll be real quick i'll say kubrick and women women in kubrick films he has one um women in his films i i always feel like that he's very disrespectful towards women and, and the only woman he shows is dressed like that that's it that's my trope it's just okay. a kubrick trope he doesn't cool. like women that's it what's yours uh just yeah just the the guy the classic thing that happens and it's when that the oh god i can't remember what his name was but he comes in at the end you were talking about him earlier uh into the barracks to where mandrake is and mm-hmm. finds ripper dead it's just the classic you know guy thinking the wrong guy is the bad guy what did you do oh. to general ripper it's just like oh it's god like, okay now we have to have all these moments of like the no but i'm the good guy <laughs> yeah so, totally so nice yeah. That was it, really. Uh, and there wasn't much, to be fair, that I was kind of nope. picking out in this. No. Okay, I let's really get into... Deep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was like, I'm just going to be super picky about this one thing that doesn't bother me at all. Right, let's get into... Right, let's get into it. I've kind of mm-hmm. combined everything together into one massive section. Yeah. 
So, science parts. Mm-hmm. The movie opens with a disclaimer, which reads, It is the stated position of the U.S. Air Force that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are depicted in this film. Furthermore, it should be noted that none of the characters portrayed in this film are meant to represent any real persons living or dead. So, Frida. Let's now talk about the people the characters are based on and how the events portrayed were accurate. Oh, shit. (laughs) Right, I want to start with the characters. (laughs) Starting with the three Peter Sellers, Mandrake, President and Strangelove. So, a lot of Sellers lines, as you said, that you thought that the conversation with Dimitri was, um, was improvised... And a lot of Sellers was improvised, the majority of it. And they actually refer to it as being retroscripted, that he improvised it and then they wrote it into the script afterwards. So when you get the transcripts, wow. it's like, yeah, this was the script. But yeah. Um, so Peter Sellers, as I said, he was in the RAF during World War Two. So Mandrake was the easiest character that he could kind of portray and base it off his own experiences. The president then, Merkin Moffley, was apparently inspired by a guy called Adlai Stevenson, who was an Illinois Democrat presidential nominee twice in the 50s. And he was the UN ambassador during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But parts of this parts of this president's storyline are 100% linked to Eisenhower. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit. Okay. And then Dr. Strangelove is a mix of many different people. So we've got Herman Kahn, a military strategist at the Rand Corporation, which was a non-profit, non-profit think tank in service of the U.S. Army. We have John von Neumann, mathematician and member of the Manhattan Project. We've got Edward Teller, physicist and father of the atomic bomb. But Sellers mm. himself has said that the betrayal was mostly linked to Werner von Braun, who was in a German-American aerospace engineer. He was a member of the Nazi party and the Schufstaffel, He was moved to the U.S. after the war as part of Operation Paperclip, along with 1,600 other scientists, engineers and technicians, where he then worked for the U.S. Army on ballistic missiles and he developed the rockets that launched the first U.S. satellite. How do we think, how do we feel about the Doctor Strange love character and his uh, basis on the people or the people he was Mm. basing on? Yeah, the gag... um... Yeah, I said, I'll just get this out of the way. Like, I just, I found the the Nazi salute thing. Like, I just went on, like, the mm-hmm. gag. I was like, I went on for way too long. And I was, like, a bit self-indulgent. Like, at that point, I felt like Sellers was just having a bit of a parade. And yeah. then, off to the mind Fuhrer, I was like, okay. Good. But anyway, it was just, like, a bit of a bit much. But get that out of the way. Yeah, like, um, but the Nazi salute in there was, like, a very sinister, they're making a very sinister point, is that they were being forced to subdue their Nazi tendencies and work for the Allies. Yeah. And so even though there was, like, a very silly gag that went on for a bit too long, it was making, like, a pretty profound point that when you stop to think about it, it's really fucked up. Yeah. It's so deeply fucked. And also, like, it was for this horrible, destructive reasons. Mm. So it's like this sellout. And for what? For bombs. It really makes your skin crawl. Yeah. Anywho, let's move on. So now, while this movie is a satire in response to the Cold War, I'm not really interested in talking too much about that because you gave us quite a lot of details in Blast from the Past on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, So you can go back and listen to Blast from the Past if you want to learn more about that kind of stuff. 
Um, because it might seem like this movie is based on the Cuban Missile Crisis, but would it surprise you, Frida, to know that it was actually not based on it and it was actually written before the Cuban Missile Crisis happened? Hmm. So it was basically the plot is actually based on a book called Red Alert, which was written Mm. by Peter George in 1958. And Mm. Peter George was an ex-RAF pilot. So he wrote this book about a rogue military officer attempting to trigger an unauthorized nuclear attack, risking accidental nuclear war. Now, Kubrick originally wrote the movie as a drama called Edge of Doom. And then (laughs) the Cuban Missile Crisis happened and he kind of went... I think maybe the only way to tell this story now is as a satire. So he reworked the screenplay with the help of Peter George and Terry Southern and wrote it as a satire instead. Wow. All right. So the arms race, right? As you mentioned in the last episode, the arms race was in full swing. The US had American nuclear missiles stationed in NATO ally countries pointing at the USSR. And this is one of the reasons why tensions were so high. Now, originally, only the president could give the go code or give the go order. But Eisenhower, egged on, I'm sure, by some well-meaning military man, got super paranoid about what would happen if the president was killed in a targeted attack or if there was a communication breakdown and the president was unreachable. Who would give the order? So Mm. as a solution... He agreed to let American officers use nuclear weapons in an emergency if there was no time or way to contact the president. So for a period of time in the US, a number of high-level commanders had the authority to fire a nuclear weapon without contacting the White House in a situation where, and quoting, the urgency of time and circumstance clearly does not permit a specific decision by the president or other person empowered to act in his stead. But, of course, Eisenhower was nervous that this would create room for someone to do something foolish down the chain of command. (laughs) Now, when Kennedy took office in 1960-61-ish, his administration was appalled to find out that not only was the White House not required to give permission... But some of the American nukes in the NATO arsenal, so countries near the USSR, were really lightly guarded so that pretty much anyone could just take a nuke and fire it. So this is when they added what's called permissive action links. And these are coded electromechanical switches that prevent the bombs from being used unless the White House agrees to it. And they were placed on the arming lines of nuclear weapons. But this only applied to the NATO-held arsenal. The nuclear weapons held by the Air Force and the Navy did not have these coded switches. They fought against them being added on the premise that it would create a fail-disable potential for knowledgeable agents to dodge the missile force. Basically, the existence of the lock might play into the hands of communist saboteurs. So they argued that strict military discipline was a better safeguard against an unauthorised strike. So they instigated a two-man rule along with the Human Reliability Program, which was basically a vetting system to stop anyone with emotional, psychological or substance abuse problems from being put in a position of control. But these Mm. vetting processes obviously don't always work and they didn't fucking work in this movie, did they? (laughs) What are we thinking so far? It's like, uh, it it, it reminds me of how loopy and the logic 
like Turgeson explaining the logic and how you're listening to him and you're just getting tied in knots. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's like, that's the same feeling that I get listening to you explain. It is, but it's just. And this- then I'm like, they're all veterans. Like these people are, you want to make sure like everyone's okay and nobody's, but they're all veterans. People that have been POWs, people have been tortured. Like there's, there is a non like vanishing chance that some of these people aren't okay. Yeah. This is the thing. It's just this madness that like, I mean, I get the logic to a certain degree where it's like, okay, well, if only one person is allowed to give the codes and if something happens to that one person, then what happens? But it, it's just this reality. You, you've you given this access to these people, to these people in charge of these bases that are in charge of these weapons that are very close to their targets and they have that ability to make the decision and and that's what Peter George wrote about it in his book because he was like I can see that this is a very easy thing that could happen mm. it's funny how it seems like and this is a theme in the movie and in what you're saying it's like well we have to be able to drop the bomb if we need to yeah like guys <laughs> okay there's a few lines of dialogue. Uh, Muffley says, General Turgidson, when you instituted the human reliability tests, you assured me there was no possibility of such a thing ever occurring. And Turgidson replies, well, I don't think it's quite fair to condemn a whole program because of a single slip up, sir. <laughs> Which is just beautiful. <laughs> so. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> when the slip up is this. <laughs> So yeah, let's talk about General Ripper and his slip up. Now, in the US, in around the 40s, there were some experiments conducted to put fluoride in the municipal drinking water. The idea was that this would prevent tooth decay, and so it was seen as a public health measure. But it seems that while a low dose of fluoridation of water is approved by the medical community, the real problem is that the difference between a therapeutic versus a toxic dose is so small that some people thought it was a bit mad to take a chance of putting it in the public's water. Mm. This is kind of the basis of General Ripper's fluoridation. Um, What's the line again? Or precious bodily fluids? (laughs) (laughs) Polluting the precious bodily fluids? Yes. I had to rewatch. I didn't understand a thing that he was talking about. Right? The rainwater. It was the rainwater. So so you're talking about the rainwater because it didn't have um, butter, because it wasn't being, because it didn't have the fluoridation in it. Uh, Because this started happening post war Mm. in the 40s. Yeah. And then I don't know what the alcohol was about. He said something about green alcohol. And I'm guessing it's just like alcohol made without the the water or yeah. rainwater. He asked for what was the drink that he asked the guy? Rainwater and green a... alcohol. And green alcohol. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That classic combination, that classic cocktail. Some bar somewhere in the world has a cocktail that's rainwater and green alcohol. You fucking know they do. The fluoridation of water, it is kind of astonishing though. It's amazing. 
They're like, what, what can we put in the drinking water that everyone needs? And like, I can imagine that people would become paranoid and that they'd say, what about my, yeah. my body, my medical decisions? That is super controversial, but I kind of love it. it. And that's the thing, but it really <laughs> was very controversial at the time. And like, there's some questions as well that people have where they're kind of going, why, why fluoride? Like, why was that what's chosen? What about things like why calcium? Not? Like, why not other things that people need? I and if did. this is such a good idea, why not put that in? So, yeah. So it did lead to a lot of debates in the in the 50s. And there was like even a lot of hearings held with like both sides of the argument giving evidence. But the thing is, over time, the medical or science professionals who felt that the risks outweighed the benefits became the minority. Um, So that by the late 50s and 60s, most of the opposition side were considered to be on the fringe. So people who were on the fringe had a number of different ideas as to what they considered to be the real reason fluoride was being put in the water. So do you want to hear what some of the conspiracy theories were? Yeah, please. Okay, uh, you like this one. It was a okay. plan by the Jews who controlled the world. Of course. Obviously. Always. It was a government ploy to pump the public with drugs to keep them docile. Yeah, yeah, checks out. Uh, it's big companies using it as a way to offload their toxic byproducts. Oh, wow, yeah. And yes, of course, it was a communist plot. But I I get that, man. Like, I get that that would make you paranoid. Like, that's a legitimate weird thing of like, yeah, okay, someone just decided that we all need this thing, but it also reduces maybe a little bit of the cost of healthcare system. There's like a probably economic thing in there. Yeah. It's weird. People's arguments were mostly a case of like, we don't know what the long-term effects are and where's the consent. Like if people don't consent having fluoride in their water, then they have to pay extra costs to get water from somewhere else that doesn't have fluoride in it and stuff. So like, it's it's legitimate things. But yeah, I I think it's... I totally, I'm on board with that. The long-term, you know, this is like an amazing trap of a lot of this stuff is the idea of long-term effects. You don't know long-term effects. Like someone needs to get in front of that whole business and be like, most side effects within this, but can you tell me like in 10 years, the long-term effects? And it's like a funny trap that of course you can never, ever guarantee, but you know that there won't be like something, but also is there some way of like explaining that most side effects from things are apparent within two weeks or four by four months or something you know what i'm saying like uh, someone needs to get in front of that a bit more to quiet the whole long-term effects argument yeah i think this problem that we've talked about things like this with conspiracy theory stuff before where it's like people will always harp on the thing that you can't prove yeah so it doesn't matter even if you get in front of it with like you know oh you'll see those effects quite quickly actually and trials will tell you and like that's why we do the trials and we figure it out and then we know that it's safe and then we do it but people will still go yeah but you don't know what's going to be like in 10 years because you don't know that's the truth i know it's a really amazing trap that yeah there has to be some way of like changing you've got to steer people away from that conversation altogether by directing them to another place of like effects of drugs usually is it's a hard one because there are long-term effects of like um although maybe not though but like you know introducing the diet coke and you're like well what is that gonna do for 30 years or sugar too much sugar processed food that has i'm i'm torn how to sift through the, the bullshit well 
that's the thing and it's obviously what they kind of rolled with for the general ripper character because as you said even though implementing a human reliability program to ensure that people put in charge of you know these kinds of actions have like emotional psychological stability as you said a lot of these guys you know a lot of the generals they're veterans they've already been in the war they've already seen things that people shouldn't have to see or deal with and we talked in Captain America as well about some of the stuff that was done to soldiers in order to create like you know versions of super soldiers this whole like pumping them with amphetamines to keep them awake and so obviously they've all come out of these environments with certain like psychological yeah. and uh, substance dependencies that wouldn't be fully understand understood at this time and they wouldn't have been given the support mm-hmm. that they needed uh, once they had left the war and so we obviously have a situation where General Ripper is on the edge and he's still very much in the war and ready to fight and has descended so much into his conspiracy theory about what the Russians are doing with the water that you know he's fully gone down the rabbit hole and decided let's just fucking get them off go coats out plan R he can't handle the tension of the cold war he's like fuck no just put them yeah Yeah. just end it (laughs) so the that's where we get these beautiful beautiful scenes on the B-52 bomber on the plane now I wanted to talk a bit about the protocols and the planes themselves but to be honest with you I couldn't really find that much information so I don't have a whole lot to say But uh, what I did find fascinating was that it is true that in the early 60s, there were 12 B-52 bombers fully armed with nuclear weapons, constantly airborne, patrolling the NATO borders with USSR. And it was apparently an operation called Chrome Dome. Every one of the, uh, like each one of these 12 flew on 24 hour patrols with three or four thermonuclear weapons and they carried a series of codes with pre-assigned targets. The patrols were the system that we know as mutual assured destruction. It's so upsetting. Okay. I did, mm. the, I know that maybe, you know, you don't have anything, the research on the protocols, but it was like legitimately interesting watching them go through the protocols. It was yeah. legit. And I think I think it would be quite accurate, but there was some discussion about all right that like they the military basically were not on site with them making this movie, so they didn't they couldn't really get they got as much accuracy I think based on their own knowledge and some contacts that they had, but like um, as to apparently the military were shocked when they saw the movie mm. as to how accurate they got the B fifty two interior. Wow. They were just like, um, somebody leaked something to you. And they were like, well, no, you wouldn't let us have any involvement. So they just had to do it from schematics that they had. Amazing. And like, and they were just like, it was, it yeah. was beautifully done. Switching so, over to the radio. Yeah, that, but like, this when is. They, when you could follow very clear. They switched over from one radio mm-hmm. system to the other. So they could only receive one thing. And that was the code. Because all, it was cool. Yeah. But what I really enjoyed then was like, once I kind of realized that, oh, these planes were, and the refueling shot at the beginning, like that, you know, that is what was when happening. When they separated? Like, you know, refueling in air. That's what I was going to... No, they were yeah, refueling that was when it. there was something yeah. connected and then it went off. So they were yeah. constantly in air all the time, yeah. had to refuel in air. I saw that the second time I watched yeah. it, I saw, I sort of picked up more on that detail and I was like, I, now you reminded me about it. So that's what they were doing, eh? Because they're always... Yeah. Airborne. Fuck. Maniac. And that's why when you were saying about the shots of them like playing cards, reading like what 
Kong is reading like a Playboy magazine because they're in air for 24 hours. They're just on patrol, just waiting. And then that's why when they finally get, they get the go code. It's suddenly like they, they've just had day, like constant patrolling of just sitting there for 24 hours doing nothing, just reading their whatever, playing their games, just entertaining themselves. And then suddenly it's no go, you are fucking going. And can you imagine the adrenaline that would have gone into them at that point of like, Jesus, something's actually happening. We're actually doing this thing. It's so fucked up, eh? Firstly, Mike, just have yeah. to say again how upsetting that is, and how long? How long were they? When they in the? Do you know how long they were in the air for? These B fifty twos loaded. Months, did you say? Or. Oh, uh, I'm but not sure how long it went on for. Actually, to be honest, I don't know. No, I think it was. I think it was quite that's crazy. Some time. But yeah, just one. I'm gonna. Look yeah, it up just need to repeat talk. again just how bloody upsetting that is. But also just the idea that how tense it is, and how much the tension was just there. So that the appeal of having someone to fire is just very strong. There is that movie, that Jake Gyllenhaal movie, Jarhead. It's it's kind of about that, but it's so much darker. It's like the the lack of action and how excited they get to be able to kill people, and then the general trauma of that. And yeah. um, oh, I have it. Sorry, Operation yeah. Chrome Dome went from 1960 to 1968. Man, what they do to these soldiers? Yeah. So you brought up about the switching of the radio. So I did try to look into this because I found this really interesting. Um, but the so the CRM 114 uh, is the radio that they switched to. But it seems that this is not something that was ever employed by the Air Force. So it's not a real thing. Some radios did use this thing called cell cal, which is selective calling. So it, this would mute the receiver unless an assigned tone mm-hmm. was received. But what I found really interesting is there's a quote from Mick Broderick's book um, called Reconstructing Strange Love, where Peter George is talking about uh, looking into this, this idea of the CRM 114. And he talks to some military contacts and their response basically led him to say to Kubrick, based on his and other experts opinions, I am of the opinion that there is, in fact, no practical way of demonstrating inability to recall the bombers other than by the introduction of a device such as the CRM 114. So it's not a real world counterpart, but the movie created an actual real way to do this. And I just thought that was fascinating. Uh, Like a new system. Yeah. Not that it's something that I think was employed, but it was just like that, like even the military were just going like, yeah, we don't have a way that that would happen. But what you're saying is pretty much the only way that you could make that happen. So, yeah, cool. It was cool. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting to be learning something detailed. from this to be watching it and, 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 and going yes. back to see how I could understand it. It's pretty fucking great. It was film. beautifully done. And what was it? P O E, period of essence. Uh, yeah, or um, peace o- on earth. Either P O E or O P. It was O P A. Peace on earth. Peace. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. P O E or crazy. Cool. Right. So the last thing that we really ne- need to get into, because we've talked about General Ripper's conspiracy theory, what's what's made him send the go codes. Talked about the B fifty twos are on patrol. The guys are in the war room trying to figure out how to stop it. And then we get from the Russian ambassador, the doomsday machine. So let's talk doomsday machine. Uh, Random interesting fact. 
10 years after the release of this movie, the Soviet Union started working on the perimeter system, which was a network of sensors and computers that could allow junior military officials to launch missiles without oversight from the Soviet leadership. So they clearly didn't fucking watch this movie. So crazy. Anyway, just a random thing that I read and I thought was interesting. Okay, let's get into the doomsday okay. machine. Okay, Frida, do you think doomsday machine, real, no real? The only reason... How do we feel about the Doomsday Machine before I talk about it? It's so... Like... Savage and desperate. But the only reason that I would think <laughs> that it might be real is that there is a whole... There is an entire storyline in The Americans, which is the 1980s Cold War era TV show, which is like they base a lot of this stuff where they are trying to track down a detector... And a detector of okay. like that a nuclear bomb has gone off because the Russians were building a machine that will automatically trigger retaliation. If And so they were trying to right. track down a particular piece of equipment that would detect that a bomb has gone off. And so that's the only reason I think it might be true is that that was a pretty big storyline in that last season of that TV right. show. So my answer is yes. Yes, it's a real thing. Okay. So, a doomsday device is a hypothetical weapon or system that would destroy all life on Earth. And in scenarios that would bring about a doomsday, it normally involves a very large hydrogen bomb or what's called a salted bomb. Now, a salted bomb is a nuclear weapon that is salted with materials designed to produce enhanced quantities of radioactive fallout. And it is a theoretical bomb proposed by Leo Zilstard. I don't know how to pronounce that name. Zilstar, Zillard? S-Z. Sorry, guys. Proposed by Leo mm -hmm. Zillard, let's say, in 1950. Not saying... He didn't, like, he didn't propose it saying that anyone should build it, but he was basically proposing it as a way to show that advancing nuclear weapons would just, in the end, lead to the point of ending all life on Earth. Now, an example of one of these weapons would be the cobalt bomb. Okay. The weapon would be made using ordinary cobalt metal instead of depleted uranium. And then once initiated and hit with neutron radiation, the cobalt would transmute into mm. cobalt-60, which is a strong emitter of gamma rays. Now, how do we feel so far? So, like, basically he was kind of saying... You could make one of these. Um, not saying you should make one of these, but basically, like, guys, we could make one of these, and if we made one of these, it would destroy our life on Earth, so really we shouldn't do this. We should just stop. That's why I hate hypothetical fucking conversations. Yeah. I hate when people do that. Take me, I'm going to shut up. What's the point of talking hypothetically? So what you're saying is that this bomb triggers, um, so the cobalt, becomes in a less stable isotope mm. by the introduction of matter that has come from a bomb, another bomb. So it starts this sort of decay. Is that what um, you mean? Well, it's just that the, the cobalt, yeah, so the cobalt kind of decays or transmutes is the word that they're using, which I don't fully understand. Big words for me. Um, it, yeah, so it's once it's hit, once the bomb is initiated, it kicks off this transmutation of the cobalt into cobalt-60, which is then, as you said, like a unstable isotope that is mm -hmm. very, very radioactive. Oh, wow. 
fun. That's good. Um, yeah. I know what you're saying about the whole hypothetical conversations, but you know then I, I also mean, kind right? of think the thing is when, once you start on this path of developing nuclear weapons and, and once we start on this path as well of like one-upmanship, somebody else is always going to be trying to create the next one. And that's what his point was. He was like, look, this is where you're going. You keep making these and you're just going to make a bomb that's just going to destroy the world. And what is the point in doing that? Yeah. And he's trying to show like, the madness of it. Yeah. Yeah. And even the, the creation of those bombs is also like preparing for a hypothetical threat or a hypothetical situation yeah. where they have the thing. So this is interesting, right? So so let's talk about the fallout and then I want to come back to that point, right? Because, okay, okay, the fallout, we're not really talking 98 years for this, for a cobalt bomb. Um, I guess like in the movie it's saying, so it says what, cobalt thallium G or something, uh, which is not a real thing or because we don't know what the G is. So uh, it's just their kind of hypothetical version of it that would be 98 years. But in reality... Uh, the fallout from the cobalt bomb, and if you want to know more about an explanation of fallout, uh, go back to Blast from the Past last week, because Frida gave us a beautiful explanation and description and told me um, what I need to do if a bomb hits London. So yeah, yes. anywho, um, the the fallout from a cobalt bomb would be 5.27 years. But the thing is, it would be intensely radioactive, so that just a few minutes of exposure would cause death. And it would likely kill 50% of the population in 30 days in regions where there's high exposure. Smaller exposure regions would take longer, but it is still effective over a large area. So while the half-life is, as I said, 5.27 years, it would still take around 15 to 20 years for the radiation to decrease enough to make the area habitable again. 20 years? Yeah. That's amazing. Wow, I now, thought for a second before you said that that you could just sort of be inside for a bit, but No, this I one is not. this one would not. You would not be okay. Um you the so and it, to do this it would require 1 gram of cobalt uh 60 per square kilometers of earth's surface, which leads to a 510 ton bomb. So it's totally impractical to make this or to build uh-huh. something like this as well as completely fucking horrific. But um but it is entirely possible to do so. And it's to all create to a deter. doomsday. Yeah. All a deterrent. Like that's like, cause that's the whole idea is just to stop anybody from doing anything because then I will, which never, that doesn't, it doesn't work. Exactly. So then this perfectly brings us into what we well, actually. I guess it has. Uh, I guess because there haven't, hasn't been nuclear war yet. So I suppose it is but, working. But, right. So this is okay. the thing, right? Because this brings us, whether we realize it or not, the concept of MAD and this whole discussion about the Doomsday Machine is all rooted in game theory. And I saw a really interesting video on YouTube about this movie where an economics professor from MIT, uh, Muhammad Yildiz, talks about game theory in connection to this movie. So I just want to go through a little bit of kind of stuff he was saying so Mm -hmm. basically game theory is the study of strategic interaction where you have multiple players and the outcome depends on each other's actions so the action of a player will depend on what he wants to get out of it as well as he what what he believes the other people want to achieve as well as what they believe he wants to achieve right so it's an infinite problem because it just goes in a loop you guess what the others want they guess what you want And you each make decisions based on your assumptions about what the other person's assumptions are about what you are and your assumptions are. Just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And game theory actually dates back to the early 1800s, but it's most well known in the context of the Cold War. 
some famous names in modern game theory are John von Neumann of the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. um, who is one of the basis for the Doctor Strangelove character. And then John Nash of A Beautiful Mind. Oh, yes. Um, John von Neumann was actually probably the main person behind Mutually Assured Destruction. He might be von Neumann. Neumann? Yeah, I can't pronounce that. Neumann. Might be von Neumann. 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 Apologies. Okay, basic concepts in game theory. You start with a conflict, because then when you have a conflict, there's room for cooperation. If there's no cooperation, then you utilize coordination, communication, and commitment. So say you have two nuclear powers. Each is committed to attacking the other. Each attack triggers an attack in retaliation. So when you are in equilibrium, there is no attack. But what about a mistake attack? Or how do you commit? Okay, so we talk about commitment, right? So we're talking, we've got two nuclear powers. And the question really comes down to commitment, whether there is yes. commitment okay. or not commitment. That makes so, sense. A doomsday machine with commitment is one that automatically triggers. Everybody knows that the doomsday machine exists. Everybody knows it will automatically trigger. Therefore, nobody attacks. Yeah. So that's your deterrent with commitment. Without commitment, the doomsday machine doesn't automatically trigger. The country has to decide whether it will or not. So therefore, the other players can make de- make determinations based on they whether, whether they think the other country yeah. would choose to trigger it and they decide the other country would choose not to trigger it because it would destroy the other country as well therefore they decide mm-hmm. to attack yeah and that was like the conversation that Dr. Strangelove was having that was kind of the explanation that he gave that's commitment yeah. okay and that's the thing so then we come into what happens in Dr. Strangelove is you have you've got your two options with commitment without commitment but the problem in Dr. Strangelove is we don't have communication because mm-hmm. in this scenario, nobody knows that the yeah. doomsday machine exists. <laughs> because so how does the other player make their decisions without knowing that the doomsday machine exists? Because they're going to announce it tomorrow. The premier likes, loves surprises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of comes down to there's a line that I believe General Turgeson has in it where he just says there's only one course of action. Total commitment. Yes, that's right. That's a great, that's a great quote. And that's the yeah. whole thing. It's the whole thing of the movie. The whole thing of the doomsday machine is total, total commitment. commitment. And and that's what happens. Yeah, B-52. Uh, the doomsday machine, the, yeah, the bomber achieves. The, they're just doing their job. They're heading for their target. They've, they've got their orders. They're doing what they think they're supposed to do. Major Kong makes his decisions, reaches his target. Doomsday mm-hmm. machine goes off. Total annihilation due to total commitment. Um, so amazing. I wondered when I was watching the B-52 sort of die, devolve, whether, you know, in a realistic scenario, if, you know, those things happened that didn't allow them to follow the steps of the protocol, whether they would not go through with it. Because I feel like in a lot Mm. of military movies that we've seen, it was like, oh, this is realistic. It's like when one step, it's like they can't proceed. Because that's the protocol is so important. So right. I was like, ah, this is a, it's like a, it's an f- interesting thing. They're like so committed to dropping it. They got the spirit of the command is more important to them than actually following the protocol. It's like, I wonder if that would happen or yeah. not. But the to- they're totally committed to dropping the bomb. <laughs> well, I suppose the whole point is that they, they can't 
no one can contact them to recall them. And even if somebody was able to get on the frequency without the recall codes, they wouldn't believe it because the protocol is to only stop if you have the even recall codes. Even though they codes. have no way to receive the recall codes. So code. their entire protocol... Because it was exploded out. Yeah. So at that point, they should have stopped. Yeah. But I suppose... But I suppose at that point it's been exploded out because the Russians are shooting at them. Yes. So they think they're being justified because it's the Russians are trying to shoot them out of the sky to try to stop them from reaching their mission. Yeah, and it's, doesn't it remind you of what I was saying about the submarine, the submariner sort of thing? Yeah. By the way, do you know that was only declassified in like 2002? Nobody knew wow. that. And when the Russians originally came up from the water, the, the general was like, you should have sooner drowned and come up and been embarrassed. Just by the way, yeah, whatever. Jesus. Well, God, that's amazing. Speaking of which, the scene as well, just really quickly, you reminded me of the scene when they were evading the missile. Yeah. <clears throat> mm -hmm. uh, and James L. Jones was, was continual evasive action. And even the scene where, where they couldn't open the bomb door and James L. Jones was like negative response. Like, I really, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. <laughs> so... All of those scenes, everything through, it's all little um, connections all the way through to show all these like human, like human mm. errors kind of thing or, or just human yeah. intervention, basically. It's like you've got the system and then it's all like little human interventions yeah. all the way through to show that what would happen when you connect with humans system. Yeah. with this type of system and this type of um, oh power. Basically. so much so yeah that's that's it that's there we go dr strange love or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb brilliant uh, that comes together now i have to watch it again let's well done so interesting God, what a good movie okay let's let's end it there and let's move into go. our what the bomb what the what the what the fuck Frida, what's your what the fuck? Um, you know, it was like really hard. Yeah. But my what the fuck was the constant ending of sentences with bodily fluids from Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> like every time he said a statement, it'd be like, and we wore bodily fluids. <laughs> and they were like, and then he said the transcript from the phone call and like he just ended every sentence yeah. with, and the bodily fluids. <laughs> so that's my what the fuck. Um, of course, I watched it the second time and I and I understood the fluoridate, yeah. fluoridation thing. Mine, but the first time, all I could hear was that. Yeah, what's yours? No, mine is related to that because as well, it's like, it's not a what the fuck in kind of normal terms when we talk about stuff where I just go like this movie, what? This was just a beautiful what the fuck within it because when he's going on about the bodily fluids he's going on about the conspiracy and the fluoridation bodily fluids bodily fluids and then that turns into loss of essence women sense my essence I must deny women my essence <laughs> I once lay with a woman and she took my essence <laughs> what I, yeah it was in the incredible. act of love making when I got the Oh my god, we haven't mentioned the Japanese torture scene. Well, I've kind of mentioned a little bit, but when when Mandrake is like, he's like, "Have you ever been captured?" He's like, "Oh, yes, I've been captured. You've been tortured? Oh, yes, yeah, I'm tortured. Did you speak? Oh, no, I didn't speak. Just his casual yeah. talking about being tortured by the Japanese <laughs> is too good not to mention. But that guy was really yeah, funny. that was it. it. That was it, really, for me. Cool. 
Yeah. Let's wrap this Yay. baby up. Final verdicts. I mean, obviously it didn't pass the Sam's test. We have one woman in a bikini. One woman <laughs> in a bikini and all the other women were spoken about as 10 to 1. <laughs> Taking the essence. Um, yeah. Oh, no, my God. No, stop. Ten, ten that women. whole end scene. Oof. We do actually the have to. We have to talk scene. about that for a second because it's just madness the way it went to that. And then it, way it went to like it needed to be a military operation that we got to make sure we've got enough. And we've got to be like fertile. We've got to make sure we've got enough troops to come out at the end. So, yeah, I'm thinking 10 to 1, like 10 women to one man. It's just like this whole madness that it suddenly wrapped up into this world of like complete patriarchy complete handmaid's tale control over women like what the fuck that's how it ends i know and then strangers like and they have to be selected based on their sexual you know the sexual appeal yeah and they're like yeah wrap this movie up and then it just ends and you're like wait what how did how did all the women in the world get subjugated all the time I like to think of it that it actually just like was their idea of what they could possibly do. But really, it, it just ended like everyone. The whole world was just destroyed by bombs. There was no hiding in um in shelters. They were all gone. These guys all. There was these no guys fantasy post apocalyptic. <laughs> Some comfort. Yeah. Um, how do we feel? Did it pass the here comes the science? I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so technical. Okay, final verdict? Five. Yeah. I agree. It's a fucking great movie. I don't have any complaints. I'm so excited to watch it again. (laughs) None. My only complaint was... Phantom Arm. Okay. (laughs) I can walk. It was just... It was weird. The I can walk. It was weird. What what do you mean you can walk? That's something... Peter Sellers stood up. He stood no, up no, by I accident. know, but I was saying like when oh, oh, and then oh, by accident, and then okay. and then he just said yeah. it, okay. and it was like he just came up with it because yeah. he's such a genius, and so they put the take in. No, the way it ended in general, the wi- women and the walking, you're like, wait, <laughs> yeah. it's like a you know it was like a comedic opera. They always end in like total chaos and everything just everyone's crazy yeah. and it's like ah, and that's the end. And well, because the ending the was to show it's... as well that like even with the doomsday machine, it just didn't have any effect whatsoever on what their thought process was. That they would still try to continue <laughs> to fight the commies. It's just like fucking hell, guys. What are you doing? This is as you said. This is why women need to be in the war room. <laughs> I know. Seriously, just steer everyone's everyone's minds away from that all right okay frida next movie what are we doing i am excited i have absolutely no idea what you're about to say (laughs) gattaca oh we're going to gattaca wow i've been waiting do you think it's time yeah yeah i think it's time i was looking down the list of like what's the order that we've been doing i was trying to figure out if it fits and i was like yeah this is this is a big famous one that's definitely going to get some people i'm pretty sure it's one of the the most accurate science movies out there apparently yeah yeah i didn't yeah it could be in both categories yeah. of like a big blockbuster and an accurate science one so i but no but yeah i, I think it's so great famous and people love it so gattaca okay woo. we're on gattaca that's next awesome all right so thank you guys for joining us and if you'd like to join us in two weeks time please do next week we have a mini soda episode that i would totally tell you what it was if i could fucking remember what it was um captain america 2 yeah, let's Captain say that. America. That one, Winter Soldier. That one. I'm sure of it. Uh, you can get in contact with us by emailing. You can send us some recommendations. You can catch us on Instagram at Science of the Movies, which uh, I don't. Yeah, catch. Come to TikTok. TikTok's fun. 
Okay, are we on TikTok? Is that it? Yeah, we're on TikTok at Science of the Movies. I've been posting clips, so I'm still like behind. We're not posting recent clips at the moment, but um, I'll catch up eventually. But we can do reply videos and people can ask questions and interact with us on TikTok. So it's way more fun. So come hang out with us. Um, Okay. So yeah. I'll come hang out with you. Okay. Don't call us bimbos. All right. Gay, call me Gabe. <laughs> Fight some fires, Jake. Okay. Uh, okay, bye. bye. <laughs>